0: Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Late Night Linux Extra, recorded mostly on the 1st of January 2021. I'm Joe, and this is a recording of the first community meetup that we had on New Year's Day evening, and it went really well. We had a good time, had some good conversations, and this is kind of an edited down version of that. We were talking for well over an hour, I think, Uh, maybe a couple of hours, actually, and this is just kind of highlights from that. The next community meetup is going to be on the 29th of January at 10 p.m. again, UK time. So that's again, Friday night. If you want to join us, then all you need is a Mumble client, headphones, and push-to-talk enabled. There's details of it on latenightlinux.com slash Mumble, and keep an eye on that because that's where I'll update it every time we're going to have another one. If the date is in the past, then another one hasn't been scheduled yet. And listen out on each episode, because I'll uh, make sure to let everyone know when they're happening. But we'll just have to see how this next one goes, and uh, I don't know, we'll work it out. And in case you haven't realized, we've now started releasing episodes of the main show weekly. We're recording them two at a time every two weeks to make it a bit easier on the rest of the guys. But they'll be being released uh, every week, so look out for those. And thank you everyone who's supporting us on PayPal and Patreon It means a lot, and it really means a lot now that we've gone weekly. It's a lot more work to do that, and uh, your help is really appreciated. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support, and there's details there. And remember that for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed, which is now twice as good value because you're getting roughly four episodes of the main show a month. So just before we get into it, sorry that everyone's anonymous on this. I'm not very good at kind of addressing people by their name and stuff. So there's just a lot of anonymous voices and Poppy pops up at one point who you'll probably recognize. But uh, otherwise, it's just a bunch of anonymous people. I must do better about that. I'm not sure how I'll fix that in the future, but maybe we can talk about that at the next community meetup, how to best uh, make sure everyone you know is acknowledged for their contribution to the conversation. So let's get on with it then. What do we think is gonna happen in 2021 with regards to Linux and open source? I'm not talking about specific predictions here, but what do you think the trends are gonna be? Where are things gonna go in 2021? I might be a
1: little biased because I'm a creative person myself, but I think slowly but surely some people in industries like 3D animation and such are gonna start seeing the value of Linux a little bit more because Windows is becoming kind of a horrible platform. And I think like all of the Adobe stuff is slowly but surely being chipped away at by other things. And there's some interesting alternatives popping up and a lot of Linux support from some of them, it seems.
0: Blender being the obvious one.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mostly use Blender for my stuff anyway, but I think uh, it's definitely gonna, yeah, make some people think about their current workflow.
0: It would be interesting to see the user stats for Blender, to see what platforms it's mostly on. I would imagine that Windows and Mac have got a lot more users than Linux. They have a, a benchmarking
1: site. I think it's opendata.blender.org where you can see all the data of all the benchmarks ever run. And I think Linux is 20 or 25% of that. But again, that might be biased to people mm. using, using Blender, obviously, and running benchmarks. So.
0: Although the thing is that stuff like Krita, my wife's niece got bought a fancy graphics tablet um i think it's like got a screen on it and i don't know anyway fancy graphics tablet and my wife's brother recommended Creta to her not because it's open source but just because it's good and free as in beer and i think she's uh, got a ThinkPad with windows on it and so she's using Creta, or at least she tried it out i haven't heard back for how well that went or whatever but i don't think that it's necessarily something people care about that is open source it's just is it good is it free as in beer and if it is they'll use it like uh, gimp is quite well used on other platforms as well and so i would imagine that more and more people are discovering blender and you know you can talk about it being a um, gateway drug or whatever but like look at firefox there's a lot of people or there were at least a lot of people using that on windows and that didn't necessarily translate into converts to linux yeah The thing is, I've been on the Linux side for, I think, five or six years now doing 3D professionally.
1: So I'm trying to, like, make sure that I can see both sides still. But I've noticed my bias is obviously more uh, leaning heavily more towards open source at this point. But just from my experience, recommending people to look into it and to try it has been somewhat successful, um, mainly because... uh, the issues that i was having with windows after a while was having to render things overnight because rendering with 3d animation can take a long time having to render it overnight and then windows like automatically applying updates in the middle of your render and then restarting your machine without you wanting it to and then losing work that kind of stuff you can't really have when you have deadlines and you know people waiting for the the projects you're supposed to deliver so
0: does windows still do that though
1: Oh, yeah. And it's still very annoying to try and fix and, and change. They really hide it as much as they can. You can kind of sort of delay it, but it's still not perfect. Hmm. But yeah, but the, the weird thing is a lot of like really big studios, EFX studios, they're all on Linux. They're, they're, a lot of them use open source stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see that it hasn't really trickled down to, to smaller users and freelancers as much
2: considering your thoughts about what's for 2021 i think the hardware part is probably where it's going to get one not so much the software because people really don't care just as long as it works so if we see more ready linux hardware in there that's just working like for instance the other day i got some bluetooth earphones for my wife she's using to give yoga lessons and then when you hook them up to your manjaro kde everything looks nice just the Earbuds work, but the microphone doesn't. But if you can get a ready-made Linux laptop where everything works, where you just use your hardware, the software does it it all, basically. Everything's there to use Linux just as another operating system. So more hardware ready-made for Linux and sold as such.
0: Are we going to see a powerful ARM Linux laptop this year?
2: Is that a hope or a question?
0: It's a hope and a question, I suppose. I don't know if we're going to see it because obviously we've got the Pinebook Pro and stuff and we've got the various SPCs, but are we going to see something that is going to be in any way competitive with the uh, Apple laptops? Who would make it and what
3: OS would it run? Like if it did, if any company was going to do it, the question I would ask is who would do it? Dell maybe? So the people who would have the money to do it would be the top tier, Dell, Asus, hp lenovo those kinds and the question you got to ask is what chip would they put in it and they could go and do a partnership with someone like qualcomm or broadcom or one of the other odms but who has a ready-made processor that's comparable to the m1 and if they don't who's going to front the engineering effort to make one and what return on that investment is there going to be? Have, are there going to be enough of these mythical, magical ARM laptops are sold? And I think a lot of the main vendors have been hurt by ARM-type sales in the past, and are wary of it. It's okay for the Chromebook class of device, but not for the high-end one. But they've never tried, have they, with the high-end? Uh, Surface books, the the ARM Surface thing and they may well just choose not to. And then the other question is what operating system does it run? Even if there was someone who had the money to do it they'd have to get Microsoft to support a build of Windows for it, which they presumably would. Yeah, I mean Windows 10 is always built for ARM. They never stopped I mean just because they don't ship any ARM devices anymore doesn't mean they don't build it for ARM and they always have built it for ARM but would they want to?
1: Well, Samsung has a, a Snapdragon based laptop but from the reviews that i've seen of it it didn't seem all that great just yet
2: yeah but wouldn't it be great if it would be like a new pine phone with a great sock that would just work as a phone and a computer the convergence dream well it kind of is there if you look at the pine phone which is just a better sock isn't it it would be great yeah a dream it is
0: yeah but it's going to take a lot of development to make that happen you know if they did come out with the pine Phone pro let's say with a better system on a chip you're not necessarily going to get instant support for the various images. In fact, it's very unlikely. So all the developers are going to have to not necessarily start from scratch, but they're going to have to do a lot of work to make it all be flawless. So it's, it's, it takes a lot of investment, um, development. And so I don't know, I would like it to happen, but I I just think that it's going to be a while before we get a powerful arm phone that is genuinely powerful enough to work as a desktop as well anything beyond a bit of hobbyist stuff although i suppose maru on the nexus uh five you could do basic stuff on that so maybe maybe there's hope maybe i should be more optimistic about it i think if anything apple
1: has spurred the competition to get behind it i mean to kind of showed everybody that, can, that it can be done and that it is quite fast. So
2: And they showed they can lock them in, those customers.
0: Yeah, and the industry generally follows Apple. Look what happened with the charging bricks. Or headphone jack. Well, yeah, same with the headphone jack. And the companies like um, Samsung and OnePlus took the piss out of them, and then a few months later start shipping the same thing. So Lenovo did a press release with
3: Qualcomm in May 2019, with um, what they they said they unveiled the world's first 5G PC called Project Limitless. It was a yoga 5G, and it was, you know, 5G bandwagon and all that. And it used some Qualcomm Snapdragon X55 modem and some weird codename CPU, Snapdragon CPU.
0: But I don't remember that taking the world by storm. Well, it was ahead of its time, obviously.
1: Did Windows ever come with any sort of ARM emulation layer? Yes. It's not as good as
3: um, Rosetta Rosetta 2, but they do have it. You're being very nice
1: to it from what what I've tried and seen. (laughs) That's kind of my thought about where the hardware lies. Like, If you bring the hardware to market, you're not going to do anything unless you can convince Windows users that there's some sort of good first-class experience there. And if the emulation layer to support the transition is garbage, then... Mm It doesn't matter how great the computer is. There's nothing to run on it. It's just a glorified phone. Windows is working pretty hard on like uh, emulating Android stuff as well. They they seem to have read something about they're trying to link your phone to it so you can run apps on Windows through WSL maybe
0: and then emulate Android somehow. That'd be great. Yeah, I think they're working on that. It makes sense to me because you've got all of the back catalog of the Windows software to use then you've got linux command line stuff and you've also got android apps it seems like a very sensible play to me you can see why they've invested loads of money into wsl and if people are using linux on wsl does it matter do we care i mean obviously it'd be better if they're using it on proper you know bare metal installations but it's better that they're using linux at all than not surely
3: i can see why some people get upset and feel like wsl is eating the Linux desktop market share. Well, that's the perception that it could do. But the problem is that the people who use WSL, for the most part, are never going to be Linux desktop users. There was never any chance that they were going to because they're, in a, they're a developer in an organization that's Windows based for whatever it is they're doing. And they need a little bit of Linux for something, whether that's automation or Building software for Linux or building server apps or you know, non graphical, non desktop apps. Those people would never have run Linux on bare metal. So yeah, I think it is a great success that they get Linux via the back door. Like the number of people who have WSL installed is a mark of the success of Linux. Not, uh, you know some people will say the mark of the failure of Windows if they have to inst- you know bake a completely separate second operating system into their 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 flagship
1: OS says a lot yeah exactly. I always thought it was funny that people were so open arms about it because it felt like Microsoft was admitting that you know developers 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 need Linux after all and they can't they can't not succumb to it right so I don't buy the the argument that. WSL is eating
3: desktop Linux because desktop Linux, like, let's be real, desktop Linux is a fraction of the entire market and it's not WSL's fault that that's the case. It's been the case for years um, and it's not surging. There's no surge in Linux desktop adoption. So, you know, let's get over ourselves and appreciate that WSL is just a vector to
0: getting Linux out there, just like, Chrome OS is and Android is. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the performance monitoring and analytics solution for real-time visibility into a Linux environment. Combining metrics, traces, and logs in one unified platform allows you to get a bird's eye view of your entire infrastructure. You can also see any underutilized cloud or on-premises servers via the real-time auto-generated host map. Datadog's machine learning-based alerts eliminate false positives and make sure that you only receive alerts on issues that matter. You can automatically detect unanticipated outliers, anomalies and errors with Watchdog, the auto-detection engine that surfaces performance problems in your applications without any manual setup or configuration. Start your free Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash late-night-linux. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash late night Linux. All right, so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about came from a question from Kyle. Who remembers Kyle, eh? He's still playing with Linux and uh, has installed a couple of distros and got his encryption working and everything. But um, he said to me, that he feels like he's at square one with privacy um because he feels like manjaro is less secure than ubuntu and he's he's obsessed with this idea of which distro is the most secure and i said to him well as long as it's a mainstream distro it's going to be fine and he he's worried about the security of snaps and um he he's just constantly worried about security and privacy, which is funny given that he's been using Windows this whole time. But it made me ask the question, how do you judge each distro on its security? Because to me, they're just, you know, Manjaro, Ubuntu, Fedora, Sousa, whatever, like they all just seem to be equally secure to me. I'd be happy to do my banking on an up-to-date installation of it. But I don't know, is that the wrong thing to think or what? I can
1: see how maybe some people would have a hard time with stuff like Arch and Manjaro because it's all community and there's not necessarily uh, a corporation behind it that has security in its interests because it's directly tied to them being su- successful as a company. But other than that, I trust Canonical more than I trust Microsoft on, on for my daily usage, I'll put it that way.
0: Oh, yeah. But take Manjaro. They're a small team. And Arch is a community distro that it's based on. And so there's not going to be any malice there, because if there was, then they'd just get found out and it'd just be a scandal. But they could miss something, potentially, whereas that's very unlikely with, say, Fedora or Ubuntu that have got a proper company backing them.
2: Right, and it's always about a tech factor. Once Manjaro, for instance, gets so big that's an interesting attack factor you have to think double wise but once it's like in the ballpark it's now in it's also how interesting is it for somebody to really mess around like so well that nobody finds out and makes use of it but
0: isn't the linux desktop such a small niche that it's not worth going after and that it would have to be something that was worth going after a server to install um, a crypto miner or whatever
2: yeah that's what i was trying to say it's not interesting enough the attack factor is like not viable for something to put the effort in.
0: Yeah, there's so much fragmentation that that's also a factor. Like, Although is there that much fragmentation, am I kidding myself that Linux desktop users use anything other than Gnome statistically?
1: Well, even if they are, would you target Gnome or would you target the underlying backend?
2: you target the browsers, probably. Yeah, but you started talking about uh, the distro themselves. So just looking at the distros themselves. I mean, yeah, you're going to have to look at the people, read the um, forums, and yeah, make an assessment yourself, I guess. It's just a leap of faith, isn't it, in this case, along with the information you can gather. He could look at something like Cubes to sort of try isolate the operating systems if he's really worried about
3: operating systems themselves being compromised, I suppose.
0: Yeah, he has looked at Cubes, and, and he was planning to use it, but it's not the most practical of distros to use is it no and it's got pretty severe hardware limitations well he's got a decent pc so he's got enough ram and uh, you know he's got a cpu that's, that can do all the virtualization and everything so hardware wise he's fine to use it but it's just generally quite a steep learning curve and quite a ball ache to use basically
2: Yeah, and if he's looking at privacy, I mean, putting so much emphasis on just a distro. I mean, you got to look at your connection to the internet. You got to look at your country. I mean, there's so many other things to think about. He's putting too much effort in just one thing, I think.
0: Yeah, you've got to have layers of security, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, just your internet connection. How can you be sure that's not watched if you're looking privacy-wise? And are you going to use a VPN? Which one? And where is it located? Do you actually know and which other sites you're looking at and how do they handle your information? So just looking at the distro, I mean, it needs some attention, but not as it's not the central point where you should worry about privacy.
1: Even your router's firmware can be out of date and have massive security holes in it if it wants to get that crazy about it.
2: Yeah, and do you trust a company who built the software for your router in the first place?
1: But I think, isn't that sort of a knock-on effect of getting into this kind of stuff to begin with? Because I remember once I started going down the rabbit hole with Linux, a lot of these questions became a lot more... Important to me, and and I'd started changing a lot of the stuff around the house, and a lot of my hardware. I think maybe he's just treading into that now and starting to feel those questions the first time, and and really expressing them and trying to figure out what doesn't doesn't work for him.
2: Oh yeah, and then eventually, hopefully, he'll get to the point where you think like, okay, I'm in a neighborhood, and um, people get broken into. Let's make sure I got the best luck compared to anyone else.
0: Well, one thing I would worry about with smaller distros is their infrastructure being compromised because they don't necessarily have the resources to stop their build server being compromised for example, and you look at a company like Sousa canonical Red Hat, they are going to make sure that does not happen because that would be a very serious problem for them but a small team like Manjaro, which i'm just picking on because he's you know he he brought that particular distro up but a, a distro of that size, you do have to consider that at least. Are they on top of that kind of security? Because we have seen smaller distros be compromised before. I'm thinking Linux Mint, for example. Yeah, I was going to
1: say the same thing that happened a few years ago, right? Where there was like a, a malicious ISO up for a little while. I
3: don't know. Everyone has uh, security incidents. Chronicle had one with GitHub. I don't know. It was about a year ago, something like that. Maybe a bit more. Nobody's perfect. You've all got to, you know, keep your eye on the ball for the, those kind of things. The, the thing I would worry about the smaller distros is not having a security team, not getting, not being on the security mailing list, and not knowing that there are CVEs coming down the pipeline. Now, if they're if they're just a, a distro that just takes an existing distro like Ubuntu and just slaps a wallpaper on it, then that's less of a concern because probably the stuff is being managed by the upstream distro, whatever upstream distro is. But if it's a distro that builds everything from scratch, then, you know, like the Solus kind of thing and, you know, the ones that have their own packages, maybe, you know, I'd look at what size their security team is. Do they have a security website? Do they have a thing that lists all the CVEs? How promptly are those packages updated?
0: That kind of stuff. That would be what I would look for. And where is Manjara with that in particular? I mean, how much do they inherit from Arch and how much do they do themselves?
3: I don't know the difference. I don't know how how much they inherit from Arch and how much they do themselves, but they definitely do some. There's a Manjaro security mailing list. And every time there's a CVE for something in Manjaro, there's an email to that list, just like there's an Ubuntu security list that works in the same way. And, you know, other distros have their own Dash security mailing lists and websites where you can see, you know, all the vulnerabilities and what version you should be on and what version of the distro is affected and all that kind of stuff. So they do have it they definitely do have it and i've seen seen the emails the interesting thing is for archer manjaro it's slightly easier because they don't have multiple supported releases unlike some other distros uh ubuntu where there's like five different releases that are supported at any point in time they have a much easier task because all they've got to do is grab the latest upstream probably build it chuck it in the repo and they're done